When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, spirituality, and I answered them as best I could with stories from the Christian tradition and stuff that I'd picked up along the way. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take the questions of the day and answer them as best I can. question today is, what would you say to Jesus if you saw him rise from the dead, or if you saw him right after he rose from the dead? What would you say? First time you met him, you'd known him for three years, you followed him, you'd listened to his teachings, memorized his teachings, you'd gone out in his name to announce the inbreaking of the kingdom, you'd witnessed his betrayal, his arrest, his torture, his execution, and you knew that maybe you were next. As one of his disciples, you would be put on a cross like all the like like every other follower of someone that was crucified. And then you saw him. He appeared to you, showed up. What would you say to him? It's strange how each of the disciples and I include Mary Magdalene and the other women in that number, all had really strange reactions to Jesus after he came back. Mary clings to him in the garden. He says, don't cling to me. Uh, Peter doesn't believe it. He goes and sees, and then there's the appearance in the upper room. But then it's a week later, and Thomas was not there for some reason. I wish we knew why. And so he meets Jesus, and he had proudly said, or confidently said to the other disciples, unless I see and the wounds in his hand and put my fingers in his wounds, and if unless I thrust my hand into his side, I won't believe. So what would you say to Jesus when he came back? He's called Doubting Thomas for a reason, because he does doubt the testimony of his fellow disciples, which is not that strange. Someone coming back from the dead 2,000 years ago is just as unusual as if it happened today. And yet he is there first day of the week, Sunday. They're there. The doors are locked. They're fearful. They're scared. There's an unseen and silent menace in the air. And suddenly Jesus stands among them. Peace be with you, he says. It's what we say when we greet each other at the peace. One of the first hits during this coronavirus social distancing was when we were still meeting in real life. We had to put limits on passing the peace and not everybody was keen on that, including me. I was hesitant to think that would somehow stop the spread of this disease, which I didn't know much about. And yet we did what we were directed to do by medical professionals and our bishop, and most of us did that anyway. And the peace of the Lord be always with you, we say, and also with you. It's what Jesus says to his disciples. And then there's a, a greeting. It says the disciples rejoiced when they saw him. 
He breathes on them, gives them the Holy Spirit. He says this really cryptic line, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This teaching has traditionally been linked to the apostolic authority to forgive sins, to absolve people of their sins, or at least announce God's absolution and God's forgiveness of sins in, a, in the same way that Jesus announced God's forgiveness of sins. And yet, um, there's Thomas, one of the twins. One of the greatest sermons I ever heard was from Jeremiah Griffin, who was a seminarian at the time, and he preached a sermon on Thomas. And he said, there, um, you know, he's known a bunch of twins growing up, and you couldn't always tell them apart, identical twins. And I had cousins like this, identical twins. You couldn't tell them apart. And sometimes you would, like, like they would switch shirts the next day after hanging around with them and it'd be even more confusing once you sort of got like i think that's johnny i think that's billy i think that's who it is you realize how easy it was to be fooled and thomas is a twin he theorized grew up in a world where he knew that people believed all sorts of stupid things that they saw they saw thomas walking down the street and they said hi johnny and it wasn't johnny it was thomas and they saw his brother, Johnny, and they said, hi, Thomas. I mean, how dumb are people? I can see Thomas saying that. Now, that's imaginative. I don't know. He's called the twin for a number of reasons. Some people said he looked like Jesus. That's why they call him the twin. I think he had a twin. I think that's probably the most obvious reason someone's called the twin. And his twin was known in their social circles. If you have a person that... Um, no one knows they're a twin. And you find out like when they're turned 60 that they have a twin. It's always like, oh, you have a twin. That changes everything. Um, and yet, uh, you know, you only need to know they're a twin for confusion's sake if that person is around in their circles. There's a great story in This American Life from a couple weeks ago, maybe months ago now. What, where, what month is it? Um, about uh, guys, two twins who were born... I think of the 1950s, somewhere around there. And they were identical twins. And one day, their mother, when they were just a couple weeks old, maybe months old, she took them to the doctor and she couldn't tell them apart. They were completely identical, completely. And she couldn't tell them apart. Her dad couldn't tell them apart. The mother couldn't tell them apart. So she used these special diaper pins. This is back in the days of cloth diapers. She had a color diaper pin for, um, let's just call them Billy and Johnny after my twin cousins. Billy, um, Billy got the blue and Johnny got the green and, and she kept the system going. You could change one diaper, change the other. And you always had, they were always in diapers. And when you bathe them, you know, you bathe them separately so you wouldn't get them mixed up. I guess that's what she did. I think that goes into the episode. It's a great episode. Listen to it. Anyway, she goes to the doctor and the, the nurse takes them to weigh them. She's, I'll just take them and weigh them in the back room, takes them away. And she's like sitting there and the nurse comes back with them and she notices that their diapers have been changed. They've been given disposable diapers. And she's like, cause he had to weigh them naked. And she's like, oh no, my system, my diaper system is gone. What do I do? And so she takes them home and she lays them out on the couch and she stares at them for like an hour and the husband comes home and, 
And he looks at them too and is like, I don't know. I can't tell them apart. So they just like wrap them up and put them back in the same diaper where they use the same color coding system. Best guess. And they go with it. Which, you know, at the time wasn't a big deal for the twins. But when they're teenagers, they overhear their mom talking to their aunt on the phone, telling her this story. And the 12-year-old twins are like, holy crap, we might not be who we think we are. We might be, and there's no way to know. So they live with this weird doubt for like their whole life until about 20 years later, they track down a record of footprints that were made shortly after they were born. And they get a doctor to look at them and they find out that they actually are the same people that they thought they were. The the mother, in her best guess on that couch after the nurse mixed them up, guessed correctly. And they are, in fact, they are named exact, the way they should be. But yet um, you can see how that even that doubt of who am I? What is my name? Am I my brother? And my brother is me. Um, for twins, the nature of reality is a lot thinner and a lot more porous than we often like to think, especially our perception of reality. Ancient Greek philosophers knew this when they talked about when you see a tower far away, you think it's square. The closer you get, the more you realize it's round because the more details you see of it. So the closer we are to things, the more we see and the more we can know. And yet sometimes when we're really close to something, we can't see it. And maybe that's where Thomas got his healthy skepticism from. Just because somebody said they saw Jesus, people see all kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> most people I talk to that have lost a dear loved one, someone they lived with, someone they were close to, um, to death, has told me that they see them and hear them and feel them often. That's a really normal thing. And that could be, you know, the spirit world. Uh, interacting with ours it could be God sending us the kind of messages we need. It could even be our own memories that are solidified relationally, imprinted in our relationships. <clears throat> Hard to know. And yet Thomas knows that people see all kinds of weird stuff. And so Jesus comes to him. What would you say to Jesus if you saw him after he'd been crucified, after he'd been risen? Thomas, <clears throat> famously, as Jesus comes up to him, um, Thomas is there. He's speechless through this um, encounter. Jesus comes up and says, peace be with you. And Thomas says, and then Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. So it's Jesus that names Thomas as a doubter, <clears throat> which is okay. It's okay to be a doubter. Much hay is made of that in sermons, <clears throat> at least in my tradition, um, that it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have disbeliefs. It's okay to kind of go back and forth in your mind sometimes when you're not really sure about what you believe. And yet um, Thomas never does. He never does touch Jesus hands or side, as far as we know, the text certainly doesn't say that Thomas does anything of that sort. In fact, Thomas 
suddenly, going from being a skeptic, a doubter, says the most profound theological statement in pretty much all of the New Testaments, at least all in John's Gospel. He says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Now, Jesus is not often called God by his disciples in this kind of way. He's called the Son of God, which certainly is a participation in that divine nature. And Trinitarian scholars and bishops and priests later uh, in the church worked out these doctrines to, to, to the Trinity. But one of the most clear statements of Jesus' divinity is the statement of Thomas, my Lord and my God. So the guy who gets the rap for being the doubter, the guy who is healthily skeptical of something he hasn't seen, He's, these other yahoos have seen Jesus and they're blathering on about it. And he's just going to, unless I, you know, I know what happened to him. I know they put nails in his hand that tore his flesh apart. And even if he's back, I want to make sure it's the right person. It's really him. I need to see wounds. So Jesus introduces himself to Thomas with his wounds. This is Jesus' calling card. This is his nameplate, his badge these wounds that he carries in his body, five wounds, five wounds. And so Thomas then says the statement of absolute faith. Um, one of my priest mentors, Trey Garland, uh, from way back when, Georgetown days, when he would receive the Eucharist um, there at the altar, he would often say, my Lord and my God. And it's a practice I've picked up and then sort of dropped and picked up again over the time. And every time we come around to this Thomas text, I'm reminded of it, that it's a really good thing to say when you take communion, my Lord and my God, when Jesus is so close and so present, and even his wounds, his body and his blood separated in the Eucharist and then remingled in our bodies. When we experience that, and we're close to it to say, my Lord and my God. It's really the only thing you can say to Jesus when you've seen him after he's come back to life. And then John tells us, Jesus did a lot of other signs. But these were written so you'd believe. And so the question for you today and me is, do we believe it? Not just that like other people believe it, but do we believe it? And believing in the resurrection of Jesus, that he's still alive, is not um, something that's like always like a rock solid belief. It's a belief. I don't know about you, but there are days I live in this 21st century world um, of engineering, science, microbiology, genetics, all the things that we live with, political theories that swirl around. I live in this world of skepticism and science, doubt. There's a lot of really smart atheists out there and in here. Um, it's hard for me to ignore their statements that maybe there is nothing out there. Maybe there, maybe we die and we come back into organic material and that's it. Maybe we weren't created. Maybe there is no God. And I can live with that in my mind sometimes. Those thoughts certainly come in. And then I also like am 100% clear that I know who I believe. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep me 
all the way to the last day, and that God is more real to me than even the reality that I perceive around me, that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead for me, appeared to many and has appeared to me as well. I've experienced him. I've known him. I feel him. I've taken him in the Eucharist. I've touched him in that moment. I've experienced his teachings that have transformed my life. I mean, like I have can have both of those skepticism and belief like happening at the same time, often in my own brain. And I don't know if your brain is like that too, but mine is like that. And so Thomas certainly is an example of someone who believes. And he says this most strongest statement of belief from being the most skeptical of the disciples. And then Jesus and John, the author, takes us on the, on the side and he says, you know, these things are written so you believe. And, you know, it's, it's actually a more of a blessing to believe if you haven't seen him in that upper room. It's more of a blessing for you to believe if you didn't touch his hands and his side. But that is the ultimate nature of belief, that it is a belief in, in the evidence that other people have told us and that we have experienced spiritually ourselves. It is not a belief like I believe that I am sitting in a chair. It is a belief in a person. It is a relational belief with Jesus every single time. And that relationship with a person can go a lot of different directions in people's lives. I think that is the coolest things about Christianity is that we follow a person. We have a book, of course. Uh, we have traditions and theologies and thoughts and dreams and rituals and all these things. But ultimately, we follow a person. And people are somewhat unpredictable. Even Jesus, when you follow him, he'll take you down paths that you may not have thought you would go down. He will get you to join clubs that you thought you might not join. And yet that is what it means to follow a person. So I'm following him today, and I hope you are on the second Sunday of Easter. Thanks for joining us for the Dear Padre podcast. I invite you to share this, invite your friends, subscribe or whatever you do on podcasts nowadays. And uh, thanks for letting me be back on the air. It's my creativity really dried up after the shutdown of quarantine. And I'm really glad to be back trying to create some meaning for myself and for the community that God's called me to. Thank you.